Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11 this morning. As you're turning there, uh, I'll remind you that we've been a bit uh, on break for a little bit from 1 Peter. The last two Sundays, we've had some guest preachers come in and fill the pulpit, and I trust that you were as blessed by them, by Dr. Curry and by uh, Paul Molner as I was, and we're now coming back into our study of 1 Peter. This evening, we'll be back in the Song of Songs as we seek to wrap up these two letters or these two books uh, by the close of the year. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 will be our text today. And let me read it in its entirety, and then we'll pray and ask God to help us uh, as we spend time examining this text together in the sermon. Uh, This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God... Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we approach this time in your word that you would speak to us. Your servants are listening. Open our eyes, we ask, that we might behold wonderful things, especially about your Son, contained in your Word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, yesterday, I had the high privilege of attending uh, the graduation of the Marine Corps Officer Candidate School, number 244, in Quantico, Virginia. 322 candidates, now second lieutenants in the Marine Corps, graduated after 10 weeks of grueling training. And among them was our very own Peter Van Erden, a young man who many of you know and have known for a long time, graduated from OCS yesterday. It's a testimony uh, to his fortitude uh, and strength of character uh, that they began with 450 candidates and only graduated with 322. Now, there was a guest of honor, as there typically is at these sort of events, a brigadier general, which if you're not familiar, is pretty high up there in the food chain of the military. 
And he came to evaluate the troops. Part of the process is that uh, at, towards the end of the ceremony, all of the, the troops will march by the visiting guest the, the, who will survey the troops and make sure that they're ready for uh, the next stage of their military career. Well, this general told a really remarkably funny story about his experience the day prior. So on Friday, they have family day. And all the families of these young candidates come and celebrate the fact that their young men and women are about to be commissioned as lieutenants in the Marine Corps. And so wives and husbands, parents and siblings and friends are all there the day before. And they meet their new Marine for the first time in 10 weeks. And the general told this hilarious story about the fact that uh, uh, these new Marines are a bit different than they were when they got dropped off 10 weeks ago. And here's the, here's the way that he relates that account. He says, I was standing here on the parade deck after the, the motivational run had finished. They do like a four-mile run with all this cadence and so forth and to celebrate their great accomplishment. And these parents walked up to their son, and the dad said, come here, son, give me a hug. And the son said, as you were. And he said, uh, I've only been issued one hug this morning, so I don't, who's it going to go to? And the dad said, well, of course, hug your mom then. And, and they said, well, we really want to take you out to lunch. We want to go out and celebrate your accomplishment. We're so pleased that you've accomplished this great thing. And we want to take you out to lunch. And the young man replied, uh, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, let me go hit the head and get cleaned up from all the nastiness from my PT event. And then what we'll do, I'll come out here and we'll assemble at the rally point and go get some chow. And the mom said, do you mean you're going to shower and then we'll meet at the car? And he said, affirmative. And the point was, these young men and women have changed. There's something different about them as new Marine Corps officers, and the difference is noticeable. And it was certainly noticeable to all who were in attendance yesterday, the way they marched, the way they stood, the way they greeted their parents, the way young men who haven't seen their mothers in two and a half months stand like this in photographs with them. They're different and that different has three aspects to it, three dimensions which set these young men and women apart from everyone else. Number one, they're different on account of their new identity as a Marine officer. There's something unique and special and life-changing about being joined to, united to, 248 years of tradition. They're also different on account of their behavior. They don't act like civilians anymore. They don't do the things their buddies from their hometown or their college still do. They've put that behind them, and they're living a different way of life now. And they're also different on account of their life's orientation or purpose or goal. They no longer live for self, but instead now they're willing to die in the service of others. The general said yesterday, what makes you different now, young men and women, is that you now have the privilege of protecting the Constitution at the cost of your life. Well, in our text this morning, Peter outlines for us those same three differences for God's elect exiles, for God's children, for His people, those who are in Christ. In other words, for us, the Christian church, we should be noticeably different than the world because of our new identity in Christ. We should be noticeably different from the world because of our behavior, which stands in contrast to the way the world lives. 
And we should be noticeably different because of the purpose or the orientation for which our life is lived. And so the question for us this morning is this. Are you living a life that's remarkably different? Are you identifiable as a Christian? Does anyone in your life have reason to be surprised by your way of life, by your choices, by your focus, by your actions? Let's look at verses 1 and 2. First of all, to see what is our new identity in Christ. Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, you arm yourselves also with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Our new identity in Christ means that we have been given an example to follow and the tools necessary for victory over sin. In Christ, we have an example to follow in suffering, Christ's example, and we have the tools necessary to have victory in the fight for sin. Verse 1 tells us that Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, that's kind of a, that might sound like a throwaway phrase to you, Christ suffered in the flesh. Does that simply mean that it was his physical body that died? It was his physical body that suffered? Of course, that's true, but Peter means far more than the fact that Jesus' body died when he hung on the cross. Peter intends to communicate to us that Jesus was truly human. He had a flesh just like us. He had a reasonable soul and a true body just like us. He was really a man which enables him to sympathize with us in our sufferings. It means that our great high priest doesn't sit in heaven with his arms crossed wondering why we struggle to get it together down here. Because he himself experienced suffering in his flesh as a real man. He was tempted in every way like we are, yet he was without sin, the Bible tells us. And that example of Christ in the flesh gives us hope in the flesh, doesn't it? Because we're really people. Because we really experience the sufferings of this world and the difficulties of this life. And we experience what it means to be tired and hungry and sad and grieved and afraid. But we have the tools for victory as we look to Christ's example in suffering. Our participation in Christ means that we can endure suffering the same way he did by using the same tools he did. We don't look to Christ's example and say, well, he was God. Of course he obeyed. Of course he didn't give in to temptation. Of course he obeyed the will of God. Christ's suffering was in the flesh so that we might have a legitimate example to follow. And the tools that Christ used are very obvious. Christ never reached across the divide and laid hold of his divinity in order to aid his humanity. Rather, the Bible tells us that Jesus used the same two tools that you and I have been given in abundance, the Spirit and the Word. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 4 with me. In Luke chapter 4 says much the same thing. It's the account of Jesus' temptation. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 tells us that after Jesus had been baptized, it tells us that he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, Luke's gospel says it slightly differently. In Luke chapter 4, Luke says, 
uh, that he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So not only was he driven by the Spirit to go into the wilderness to face this temptation, while in the wilderness he was being led by the Spirit, and he experienced three great temptations, the same sort of temptations that you and I face. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life. Are you hungry, Jesus? Make some bread and feed your flesh. You see all these kingdoms, Jesus? Bow down to me and I'll give you what your eyes desire. Are you really God, Jesus? Throw yourself down and prove to everybody that you ought to be exalted as the Son of God. The same temptations that Adam and Eve faced, the same temptations that Jesus faced, the same temptations that John tells us in 1 John chapter 2 that we face. And when Jesus was faced with temptations, when he suffered in his flesh, he didn't say, I'm God, you can't tempt me. Where did he go? Straight to the Bible. He quoted scripture. He went straight to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he recited to the enemy in the moments of his temptation promises and truths of God's word. He had the spirit and he had the word. And we have the same spirit in fullness, Scripture tells us. And the same word of God, including the record of Christ's example, that we might be victorious in the fight against sin. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, when Peter says that we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking... It means we approach life in the flesh, we approach the difficulties of this life, temptation and sin with the mind of Christ, to arm ourselves the way Christ armed himself. Does this not call to your attention Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's ours. We have it, which is yours. Being united to Christ means being united to his mind, to his way of thinking, to his way of living, even to his way of suffering. We're armed not only with the example of Christ, look at how he overcame, but with the mind of Christ, a mind that Luke tells us grew in wisdom, grew in wisdom by studying the word of God, and we have this same word. What does Psalm 119 verse 9 tell us? How does a young man, and we can replace that young man with any Christian, how does a Christian keep his or her way pure? By guarding it according to the word of God. We have this same word in the same spirit. We have the example of Christ and the tools of Christ to have victory over sin. We've been freed not only from the punishment of sin, the eternal wrath of God, but also our slavery to sin. We are free men and women in Christ. In other words, we are able to choose not to sin. We often act like we can't help it, don't we? We act like we just couldn't help it. If you're a parent, you'll know this phrase. You've heard this probably countless times. So-and-so made me so angry. Actually, let's just, let me change this illustration. It doesn't matter if you're a parent of young children. You've probably said that before. So-and-so makes me so mad. You make me so frustrated. You made me this way. Lord, that woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. 
No, 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 Lord, that serpent came in and he made me do it. Mankind has been pawning off responsibility for our sins since the beginning of time. But Peter says that we're able not to sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, no longer chases after it, is no longer enslaved to it, and now can live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I want to turn our attention just very briefly to Romans chapter 6. Many of you are familiar with this passage. Paul in Romans chapter 6 is telling us what it means to be justified by faith, have peace with God, reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are now in Adam, or excuse me, in Christ, he says in Romans chapter 5, no longer in Adam. Christ is our representative. He's our head. It's his example. It's his life that we now live in. And then he goes on to ask this question, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The implication, of course, is that if you're united to Christ, you have died to sin. You've ceased to sin, as Peter says. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus are baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been united with him in a death like his, and we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, think of that list from 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and idolatry, that old self was crucified with him. It was put to death in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's what our identity in Christ means. It's done away with so that we would no longer be enslaved to it because if you've died to it, you've been set free from sin. We have in Christ not just an example but the tools to fight sin, to have victory over sin. This is what makes us different by virtue of our identity in Christ. The point is clear. We recognize that sin has neither the right nor the power to control those who are in Christ. The believer may now live according to a new principle, a new way of living, having been freed from the dominion of evil human desires and enabled to live according to the will of God. Do you live like that? Is your life remarkably different? Are you like those young Marine officers marching across the parade deck differently, or yesterday, who their family could recognize maybe the shape of their face, but their haircut was different, and their posture was different, and their language is different, and their commitment was different because of their identity as new Marines? Have you been set free from sin and able to be obedient from the heart to God? Slaves to righteousness, Peter, excuse me, Paul calls it in Romans chapter 6. Well, all this is said in the context of Christian suffering. The Christian suffers in the flesh, and it's a demonstration of their union with Christ. As we suffer in the flesh, and give no provision to it as we're enabled by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God to choose to do the will of God, it's an indication that we have chosen Christ over this world. 
We've chosen not to live the rest of the time in this life according to the passions of the human will, he says in verse 3, or verse 2. And then he goes on in verse 3 in what's one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture, for the time that's passed is enough for sin. That's enough. You've had your fill. You've done it all. Put it to rest. Choose righteousness. And in fact, it's interesting here, our translations don't do a very good job of of showing this this contrast that's being painted. But in verse 2 it says, live for the will of God. And in verse 3 it says, for the time is past for living according to the will of the Gentiles. When it says what they want to do, that's what's their will. This contrast is being painted, not only have we... Uh, been given the example and the tools and a new mind in Christ, but now we reject the old behavior and our new behavior stands in contrast to it. No longer do we look like the world. The Christian should look noticeably different from the worldling. Like those new second lieutenants that we pointed out already, they look different from their siblings. Uh, You can see a family resemblance, I'm sure, But there's something different about their posture, about their um, behavior, about their language. And and frankly, it'll seem strange to their old friends. It'll seem strange. A lot of these young men and women, what they do is they go to officer candidate school in the middle of their college career. And so they're, they're probably finished their junior year, and now they're getting ready to begin their senior year at school. But now they've gone through officer candidate school. And so they're going to go back to their old life. They're going to go back to Georgia Southern. They're going to go back to UNC. They're going to go back to uh, Arkansas. They're going to go back to Tennessee. They're going to go back to Clemson. They're going to go wherever it is that they're finishing their degree. And their old friends are going to be eagerly anticipating them jumping into a life of debauchery with them again. They're going to waste away their Saturdays having drank too much on Friday night. They're going to waste away their Sundays having partied all night on Saturday. They're going to cheat on tests. They're going to live it up. They're going to do drugs and all the things that the world wants them to do. And they're going to get there and go, that's not me anymore. I don't do those things. I'm committed to a higher way of life, to a different order of things. And I can't get involved in that stuff because I have to keep my honor clean. Because I have to demonstrate commitment and courage in the face of moral adversity. And I'm going to live differently. And their friends are going to laugh at them. The general warned them, you're going to go back to your schools and things are going to be different for you. And that's great for Marine Corps officers, but what about for Christians? What about for you? For us? Are we remarkably different than the people around us? Do they have any reason to wonder why we do the things that we do, and maybe more importantly, why we don't do the things that we don't do. The world should think that it's strange. Far too many Christians are worried about not appearing odd or weird. We don't want the world to be shocked by us. We don't want to be so different that we can't get non-Christians to hang out with us, to come to our church, to want what we have. But Peter says if we're living like Christians, the world will be surprised by our behavior. They will be shocked by not only what we choose to do, but what we stop choosing to do, the world's ways. 
it will appear strange to them that we live according to Christ. Perhaps you need to be reminded, as I do, that Christians aren't simply worldlings plus Christ. We're totally different. It's why Jesus uses such shocking language in John chapter 3. He doesn't say, in order to enter the kingdom, you have to add Christ. He says, in order to enter the kingdom, you need to be born again. Totally remade. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians that the old is gone. Behold, something totally new is here. When the world says it's normal to watch these shows and movies, Christians say, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes, Psalm 101, verse 3. When the world says these jokes are funny or this language is acceptable, we say, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, Ephesians 4, 29. When the world says, I've got to earn money and Sunday's just another work day, we say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, Exodus 20, 9 and 10. The same contrast can be said about our perspectives on sex and relationships, dating, on education, on spending, on accumulating possessions, on retirement, and much more. Are you living intentionally as a Christian, a remarkably different Christian in all areas of your life, or do you leave some for the flesh and only give some to Christ? I'm okay being weird when I'm here at church because it's only other Christians here, but I don't want to skyline myself in the workplace or online or with my friend group. My friends, there's a reason that we should be able to face ridicule and suffering like Christians, and it's because we've been united to Christ, and we walk the way He did, and we will therefore experience the same things He did. A servant is not greater than his master. It's an indictment on Christians the world around that we wish we had an easier life than Jesus. We want our lives to be greater than that of our master. The reason we can face ridicule is because we know the day, day of judgment is coming. Look at verse 5. They, those who malign us for our behavior, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Believers face momentary affliction, the momentary slander of a lost world in this life, but those who pursue these wicked things will on the day of judgment come face to face with a righteous judge. Even as Peter said earlier in this letter, when Jesus was reviled, he himself did not revile in return, but left all things to him who judges justly. Jesus could say, this isn't right. I'm doing the right thing. I alone am righteous. I alone am living my life in obedience to God. Why is this happening to me? But he didn't. He said, God, you know, and you will judge. Mark this as well. Jesus is the judge, not us. We spend far too much time in our Christian circles 
wagging our fingers at those people out there in the world who keep doing these wicked things. I don't mean to imply that we're not able to judge a, a, a tree by its fruit. And I don't mean to imply that wickedness should not be called wickedness for what it is. But if our, uh, our interaction with the world ends at simply wagging our fingers at them, we've put ourselves in the seat of judge. Rather, God has put us in the seat of harvester. We're meant to go out into the world and evangelize and show people the grace of God and model it before them and tell them of the excellencies of him who transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Not just to wag our fingers at the people who can't figure out how to live moral lives apart from Christ. We can't expect anyone to do that apart from Christ. We struggle to do it in Christ And yet we expect the world to act like Christians when we Christians act far too often like the world. Peter wants the believers that he's writing to to have confidence that the gospel matters. He says in verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, he doesn't mean here that Jesus at some point after his crucifixion went to the dead and proclaimed the gospel that they might repent and give, be given a second chance. Uh, clearly, he's not meaning here also those who are spiritually dead. I think some people take this to mean he's, you know, we're dead in our sins, like Paul says in Ephesians 2, and that's to whom the gospel was preached. Uh, verse 5, he's talking about living and dead people. It would be very strange for him to mean something else when he says dead people here in verse 6 without any context. What he really means here is bear in mind that the gospel has been preached, and even though some of your friends are dead now, and they've experienced in the flesh the judgment that all men will experience, that's physical death, in the spirit they'll experience the life of God forever. All of us are going to experience the judgment in the flesh the way that all people are judged. We're all going to die. That's a part and parcel of living in bodies that have been cursed by sin. It's it's part of the deal. We're all going to experience that in this life. Hopefully at the end of it. That's part of being judged in the flesh according to the way of all men. But the gospel is preached so that even though those of us who have died might live in the spirit forever the way God does. Paul here, or excuse me, Peter here is, is doing something similar to what Paul does in the letter to the Thessalonians. You remember, they were concerned that some of their believing friends had gone on and would miss out on the benefits of Christ's return and the resurrection and eternal life. And he says, no, no, no. He says, we grieve. Yeah, of course we grieve because our loved ones are gone, but not like those who have no hope because we know that when Christ returns, he's going to raise them all up and bring them with him to glory. And so we're promised the life of the spirit in the way that God does, even though we might have to experience the judgment of death in this life. Well, our lives should look different, no longer living as the Gentiles do. Our lives are different because we've been united to Christ, and the very purpose of our lives is now different. The orientation of our lives is now different. And so I ask you as we go to this last point, What is the orientation of your life? What is the direction of your life? Peter says that our lives should be pointed outward and upward. 
outward in service and upward in worship. The paragraph begins, be self-controlled and sober-minded. As we've just said, we remember that Christ is coming to judge, that the end is at hand, and therefore we should live a life that won't shrink back at his coming, but will welcome it, welcome Christ's return, knowing that the genuineness of our faith has granted us confidence on the day of Christ's appearing. The end is drawn near because the last days have begun, as Jesus himself says, and this calls for a radically different way of living. It's a, a life that's lived in self-control, not giving up to the passions of our flesh, but in self-control, choosing to live the rest of our time according to the will of God. Sober-minded, aware that Jesus is coming back. Well, how do we live with an outward and upward orientation? Peter begins by telling us that we should show love earnestly, and he calls this the highest priority for the Christian. He says in verse 8, above all, above everything else. Some of us wish that what Peter had said here is, above all, read your Bible every day and keep record of it. Above all, go to church at least three times a week, morning, evening, Wednesday night, if you got one of those, make sure you do Sunday school. Above all, tithe regularly. But he doesn't. It's not to say that those things are not important in their own right for the Christian. But he says, above all, love one another earnestly. That's what we should be known for here at Christ Covenant Church is those who love each other earnestly. It's the highest priority for the Christian, Peter says. And this word earnestly is so fascinating. It's such a rich word. The word earnestly describes a horse running at full gallop. In other words, Christian love is strenuous love. It's hard-working love. It's the sort of love that might make you sweat. And that's the way love really is sometimes, isn't it? It's difficult. You ever find it hard to love others? Don't look around. Don't make eye contact with anybody. You ever find it hard to love other people, maybe people sitting near you right now? Trust me, they find it equally hard to love you. And the reason is because we're so unlovable. We're all full of sin and shortcomings and personality and quirks. But true Christian love, Peter says, covers all that up. It ignores those things. It ignores and overlooks other sins and shortcomings and instead shows love no matter what. It recognizes that earnest love means loving like Christ loved us even while we were still sinners. Christian love doesn't atone for other people's sins and it doesn't try to make them atone for their sins. Christian love recognizes that Jesus did that. Christian love recognizes that Christ paid for the sins of his people, even the sins that I'm most upset about in you right now. When I do marriage counseling, I ask couples to go home and write down five things that the gospel makes true about your spouse, five realities that the gospel means are true about your spouse, and I give them the first one as a freebie. I do this in premarital counseling as well. I say, come up with five, here's number one. The gospel means that your spouse has already been forgiven 
for all of their sins in Christ Jesus, even the one that you find most difficult to forgive. Christian love does that. Christian love looks at the person that's offended them, that's quirky, that's difficult, that has habits that bother them, and says, I love you anyway. Let me cover that stuff up with my love. I don't need you to atone to me for all of your sins. I don't need you to fix yourself before you can come to me as a friend because Christ didn't make me fix myself before I came to him. Because Christ loved me while I was his enemy, while I was still a sinner, and he doesn't expect me to clean my act up. He simply loves me out of the abundance of his love. And Christian love does that to each other and says, I know you're weird. I know you're difficult. I know that you hurt me, and I love you anyway because Christ loves me. If you find yourself regularly annoyed with fellow Christians or cynical or sarcastic or angry or saying unkind things about brothers and sisters in Christ or assuming the least charitable interpretation of their words and actions, then you are not loving in a Christian way. You're living towards others the way that the world does. You are focused on how others make you feel, on how they interfere with you or threaten your goals or desires. Rather, Peter says that if you're focused on Christ's glory and each other's good, you will cover all that up with Christian love. Because the Christian life is oriented towards others, not towards self. And one of the other ways we do that is through Christian hospitality. There's an old proverb that says a guest is like a fish. After three days, it begins to stink. But the Christian says a guest is like a friend. And they can stay as long as they want. Christian hospitality means opening up their homes and their lives without grumbling, without complaining. So many people practice hospitality the way they practice tithing. Okay, what's my 10%? All right, that's what I have to do. Here's my 10% every month. Boy, the church gets it out of me every month. Here's my 10%. And the Bible says, God says, stop bringing that to me at all. I don't care about that. Your sacrifices smell awful to me when they're brought with that sort of heart. Rather, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And Christian hospitality isn't, okay, well, here's another holiday. Let's ask that person that has nobody else to go to, and we'll try to get them to leave early so we can play cards after they leave. Christian hospitality says, not only is my home open to you, but my life is open to you, and my possessions are open to you, and we hold all things in common together like the early church did, because you and I are united with each other in Christ. In the same way that husbands love themselves by loving their wives, because the two have become one flesh, Paul says in Ephesians 5. Christians love themselves and demonstrate Christ-like hospitality by loving each other. Because we're united together in Christ. Do you love like a Christian? Are you hospitable like a Christian? Do you remember that God showed his love for you that while you were still his enemy, Christ died for you? That Jesus shows hospitality to you by opening up his heavenly home and spiritual storehouses to you by giving his life for you and all without grumbling even once. All without grumbling even once. Well, these last two verses, and we'll, we'll conclude rather quickly with these. Verse 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards, 
of God's varied grace. A steward is one who manages someone else's possessions. Uh, elsewhere, Paul will say, if you received every, any, everything from God, why do you brag as though you didn't receive it, as though it was in, inherent to you, your natural gifts and abilities? The Bible teaches that God forms us together in the womb, which means that our natural gifts and abilities are not natural at all. They're gifts from God. They're manifestations of His grace in our lives. And so whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God because it was from Him that we received the ability to do it. So Peter here says, uh, as each has received a gift, use it as a steward of God's grace in your life to serve others. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 10, as each one has received a gift. There's no room in Peter's theology for a hierarchical sort of white-collar approach to the church and to Christianity where the paid professionals do all the important stuff and everyone else sits there like a potted plant waiting to be watered Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Rather, he says, you have received a gift. 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 And each of us contributes together to the functioning of the body as we manifest those gifts and steward the grace of God in service to one another that Christ might be glorified. So perhaps you're trying to figure out how to plug into the life here at Christ Covenant Church. What should I do with my time and my talents? How should I engage? Well, part of the Christian life means asking the Lord to help you discern what ways He's graced you by His Spirit to serve other people that He might be glorified. Christians will endure suffering, and we should. That's what it means to follow after Christ. We will be viewed as strange for our behavior, not only what we choose to do, but what we choose not to do. But Christian love and hospitality means living out the grace that God has shown us toward each other. It means using God's gifts that he's given us in a way that's outward and upward focused, not inwardly focused. Are you living that way? Are you living a remarkably Christian life? Is there something different about you? When you interact with your non-Christian friends and family members, do they know because of your identity and because of your choices and because of your life's orientation that you're different than they are? There's something new about you having been remade in the image of God by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us strength and grace for every task that you lay before us. Help us, Lord, to exercise the graces that you've given us in a way that brings life to other people, that we would love each other and cover up one another's sins and shortcomings and failures, being hospitable even as Christ has shown love and great hospitality to us. Help us to look different than the world, not like it, not just a little different, but so different that they find it shocking that we would be privileged as the apostles were in the book of Acts to, count it, to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.